Before we get into this week's episode, I want to let you know that you're going to hear Frank talk about bodies, weight, beauty, dieting, and related topics. Now, I know that these subjects can trigger harmful thoughts and behaviors for me if I'm not careful, so please take care while listening to this episode or skip it and meet me back here next week. My first memory of recognizing that my body should be controlled is from when I was 11 or 12 years old. Thanks to some particularly nasty asthma medication, my body was already well on the after side of puberty by that point. Now, at that time, my mom was a seamstress, so we had a three-way mirror for the fittings she did with customers. And I remember standing in front of the mirror, the room dark and quiet, everyone else in bed, and thinking to myself that it was time to lose the baby weight. I felt rounder and softer than I should be. I often wonder why this memory has stuck with me for 30 years. There's so much I don't remember about that time. But I've contemplated this memory many times over the past decades. It's certainly not an exceptional memory in our culture. I'm sure many people have a similar formative memory. The moment one's body goes from simply being a body to being a good body or a bad body. The moment one's body becomes more about work than about pleasure. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy without losing our humanity. This episode is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite and most widely shared episodes from last year. It's part of a larger series I did on the business and politics of the self-help industry called Self-Help LLC. I loved making this whole series. I examined the role self-help plays in disciplining our behavior, how empowerment became a brand, why self-discovery has become such big business on Instagram, and much more. But the day after this rebroadcast airs, the new Barbie movie is hitting theaters. And it seems to me that we can read Barbie as an artifact of the self-help industry. Barbie hit the shelves right around the time when more women were looking for more out of life. Just four years after her debut in 1959, Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique. That same year, Barbie became an executive. She went on to become an astronaut in 1965, a surgeon in 1973, and a Canadian Mountie in 1987. Part of Barbie's enduring legacy, though, is her body. The impossibly thin waist, the curvaceous hourglass, the feet ever ready for a pair of high heels. She's oh so very white and blonde and quote-unquote conventionally attractive. Millions and millions of children have grown up with the Barbie body as an indicator of what a good body should look like. Barbie reinscribes a particular brand of womanhood that knows how to thrive in patriarchal capitalist imperialism, but doesn't question the systems she operates within. Barbie portrays an image of having it all, but 
doesn't really question what all is. This episode is all about the body at work and how the medium of self-help acts on our bodies, as well as how that shapes our broader understanding of what's good, what's bad, and what it means to improve. Again, please take care while listening to this episode or skip it if this type of content might cause you any trouble. For context, I'm coming to this episode with a history of disordered eating, exercise addiction, and body dysmorphia, which are all fairly common among autistic women like me. But at the same time, I am a white, cis, thin woman with no visible disability, which, for all of my internal struggles, provides me with an incredible amount of privilege when it comes to how others perceive me at first glance. There is a huge overlap, of course, between the self-help industry, productivity discourse, and diet culture. Whether implicitly or explicitly, how we talk about things like discipline, accountability, and willpower shape the bodies we inhabit and how we relate to others' bodies. These concepts leave their marks on our flesh. This episode won't and can't cover it all. I've chosen to focus primarily on issues of gender and race and share stories and analyses from three women. But so much more could be said about gender and race, plus disability, chronic illness, trans bodies, and fat bodies. And while men often perpetuate the harmful messages others internalize about their bodies, men also deal with a strained relationship to their bodies. I've got links to books and podcasts I love on these topics in the footnotes to this episode, and I highly recommend you check them out. If you'd like to hear or read the rest of the Self-Help LLC series, you can find the link in the show notes or visit whatworks.fyi. Body modification has probably been with us as long as human bodies have been around. We pierce, we tattoo, scar, elongate, shave, bind, and stretch our bodies. Different cultures practice body modification in different ways and for different reasons. The history of body modification teaches us that there is no one right way to have a body. What a good body looks like and does changes over time and across the globe. Any impression we have of what we're supposed to look like is necessarily located in time and place. And that impression can change fast. In other words, the impression I have of what my body should look like is located in white American culture in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. The impression you have is located where you are, the culture you're in, and the time when those impressions were forming. Not only are our criteria for judging whether a body looks good or not constrained by time and place, our sense of what's normal is constrained as well. There is no normal when it comes to health, appearance, or ability. Any fixation on being or looking normal is a fixation on a fiction that's designed to create in-groups and out-groups. And often, normal creates a moral framework that defines good and bad. Here's what I mean. We think of illness as an aberration of normal, with normal being healthy or well. When we're well after an illness, we're back to normal. But illness is 
normal, right? We all get sick. It's so normal that our body has systems designed to deal with it. We think of disability as not normal, but few things could be more normal than disability. Historian Virginia Scharf tweeted recently in response to the ableist garbage leveled at Pennsylvania Senate candidate John Fetterman. Fetterman suffered a stroke earlier this year and has struggled with verbal processing delays since then. Scharf wrote, As a historian of mobility, here's what I know about accommodating disability. Everyone at some point requires accommodation. What helps anyone helps everyone. Normal was the excuse that justified ripping Indigenous children from their homes and culture in the U.S. and Canada. They needed an education and a haircut in order to fit into normal society. When the communities they already belonged to were perfectly normal themselves. Postpartum parents received countless messages about getting back to their normal size and shape. Of course, getting pregnant and giving birth is perfectly normal. Normal is instrumentalized as a tool of conformity and oppression. And this becomes even more destructive when we start assigning good and bad on the sides of normal. Pause on the Play host and founder Erica Corday reminds us to reconsider our normal. And what she means is that every time we make a comment about something being normal or not, we're actually making a comment about our own particular vantage point. What we understand to be normal is just a sliver of the normal experience that other people might have. Expecting others to conform to our normal is a pretty audacious act of hubris. The easiest way to illustrate the idea of normal and beauty is just to look at like Sephora and how you can shop by skin type. That's Jessica Defino. She's an independent journalist who covers the beauty industry and beauty culture. She's written for outlets like the New York Times, Allure, Teen Vogue, Women's Wear Daily, and more. There's dry, there's oily, there's acne prone, and there's normal. So normal is sort of defined as like, nothing's wrong with you. (laughs) It's like defined by the absence of quote unquote abnormalities. The idea of normal skin came from classifying the skin into skin types. And skin types weren't invented until the early 1900s. And this concept was not invented by a dermatologist or anyone with any special knowledge of the skin, but rather by a beauty brand founder who was marketing. And it was Helena Rubinstein. And she was the first one to categorize skin as either dry, oily, or normal. Um, And this was to market her moisturizer. So what she was doing there, she was positioning like exceedingly common things like dry patches and oil productions like these are features of normal human skin as abnormal turning them into problems to be solved and um, really being one of the pioneers of industrialized standardized beauty and so what I think is is important to note here is like there's nothing abnormal about dry skin that affects like 70% of the population. There's nothing abnormal about oiliness. Um, It's very common. There's nothing abnormal about acne. This is how the skin communicates with you. Like if your skin is alive and functioning, it's gonna have some some stuff happen to it. You're gonna get wrinkles. You're gonna get a blemish. This is all normal. Um, And I think the The beauty industry, specifically the skincare industry, makes a lot of money by telling us it's not. 
then, so you get the other side of the coin, which is this idea of normalization. So normalizing things that are abnormal, um, especially when it comes to beauty standards. So my favorite example of this, like a really easy way to visualize this for me is, okay, one of my, one of my like favorite trashy things to watch is the Bachelor Bachelorette series. So go look up pictures of the Bachelorettes from the first season of The Bachelor and The Bachelorettes now. And you can see what 20 years has done to the baseline standard of beauty. So you look at these bachelorettes from the early 2000s and they were beautiful women, but they, I mean, they looked sort of normal, but none of them would be on today's version of The Bachelor, you know, like they're not as thin. They don't have the fake boobs. They don't have the fake butts. They don't have the Botox. They don't have the injectables. They don't have the plump lips. Um, I think it's really fascinating to just look at those two groups 20 years apart and see how we as a society are now defining like beautiful people. And the more normalized these certain behaviors are, say injectables and surgery, the more that normalization raises the baseline standard of beauty I sort of think of it as aesthetic inflation. I'd like to just pause and honor that phrase, aesthetic inflation. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yes. And the higher that baseline of beauty gets, the harder it is for women and girls, especially to opt out of them, to opt out of spending their time and money and energy on this aesthetic labor without facing the political, financial and social consequences of not performing beauty. So it really is a collective issue. It is something that we are all a part of and all perpetuating to varying degrees. And it has our behaviors have have impact on on the people around us. We can think of it this way. You are no doubt familiar with how much more you're paying at the grocery store than you were, say, a year ago. Or you're familiar with how much less or lower quality you're buying to keep the bill the same. That's because of financial inflation, which I discussed with NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith earlier this year. We need more dollars to achieve the same buying power, more dollars to attain the same value of goods. What Jessica is saying when it comes to aesthetic inflation is that our time, energy, and money don't go as far as they used to when it comes to how we present ourselves. The expectations are constantly changing and rarely, if ever, lessening. We've normalized eyelash extensions, highlighted hair, painted fingernails, Botox, grueling workouts, and starvation diets. And that means we have to devote more and more of our resources just to keep up. Aesthetic inflation, just like financial inflation, hits some people harder than others. The farther someone finds themselves from quote unquote normal, the more they likely feel the need to compensate. I asked body confidence influencer Tiffany Ema about that. The most marginalized person is probably going to be a, a dark-skinned Black person who is fat. That's probably going to be the most marginalized person. And especially if they have even more intersections, like maybe they're in a disabled body. So the more intersections you have, the more marginalized you are as a person. And we as individuals specifically what i did was like okay i'm already a dark-skinned woman like i also i can't be fat so i need to be as skinny as possible i need to get closer as like a little bit closer to eurocentric standards so that i can get 
further ahead in life um because for people in oppressed bodies it's not just like oh i need to be skinny so i can be pretty it's like being smaller will help me get into relationships it'll help me get better jobs like and there were all these like levels for me where i was like you know if i work hard to be as skinny as possible like i can overcome some of these obstacles that i have as a dark-skinned black woman and for me like internalizing the messages that i was getting that i was not beautiful internalizing those messages is what negatively impacted my body image and i felt like i really needed to work as hard as possible to move to separate myself from those messages um so i wanted to you know I wanted to try to be the black woman that's different. What Tiffany describes is an onerous amount of labor, aesthetic labor, the amount of work, energy and money required to compensate for the ways in which one's body has been marginalized are untenable. And what's more, there is never enough work on the body that satisfies the systems that insist on it. It's not that our own appetite for a certain aesthetic is insatiable. It's that the systems we live in insist on insatiable demands. But that's America, right? USA! USA! We valorize hard work at any cost. Aubrey Gordon, a fat activist, writer, and the co-host of Maintenance Phase, makes a familiar historical connection in her book, what we don't talk about when we talk about fat. And if you're thinking, it's Protestant work ethic, you have been paying attention. She writes, quote, America is a meritocracy, we insist, defined by hard work and tenacity, the hallmarks of a true Protestant work ethic. Bodies become a symbol of that work ethic. The American exceptionalism that we have long believed defines Americanness itself. Jessica DeFino told me that even when the demands in one area seem to ease, those same demands appear elsewhere. I see this huge gap in the sort of mainstream, like vaguely liberal sense of body positivity and the messages that sort of the mainstream media and, and social media are, are feeding us about, you know, all bodies are beautiful, all bodies are good bodies. It's so... I was going to say interesting, but maybe it's just typical that as we are hearing all bodies are good bodies, we are getting more and more messaging about what we have to do in order to have good skin. And this idea of having good skin is, you know, dependent on a 10-step uh, skincare routine twice a day, morning and night. It's dependent on injectables. It's dependent on facials and procedures and lasers, surgeries, and all of these sorts of things. So like, as as body positivity messaging ramps up, we are being led into stricter standards for skincare. I think we can attribute that to this idea that the beauty ideal is not one static thing, right? There are all sorts of different features that can be accepted into this idea of the standard of beauty. So the standard of beauty is actually a set of parameters that allows for variation between a set of sort of like constantly repositioned goalposts. And so throughout history, we're constantly like renegotiating the boundaries of that range, of that range of ideal beauty. We're redrawing them, especially as, you know, the political landscape changes, as popular culture evolves, we get a different set of standards that we adhere to, right? So those, those 
goalposts are constantly being moved, but they're never being widened. So you'll see throughout history, and we're seeing it now, when one boundary is pushed, another boundary is almost always moved up to meet it, to keep us within this strict boundary of the beauty ideal. Um, so that's what we're seeing now with bodies versus skin. As anti-diet culture rhetoric becomes more mainstream, this sort of skin critical messaging is ramping up to meet it. For example, like a liberal beauty media site or a like vaguely liberal social media influencer will not tell you that you need to lose five pounds in order to be beautiful and good, but it will tell you that in order to have good skin, you need to address your wrinkles and your pimples ASAP. Um, I think it's also really easy to see this with a lot of body positive influencers. Like there's, there's one that I'm thinking of specifically who like just wrote a book about loving your body no matter what it looks like and also does sponsored posts with Botox. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And it's like you see it all throughout the body positive space where a lot of people are making peace with their body. But in order to sort of accommodate the coping mechanisms that they lose, right, when they decide to stop trying to lose weight or stop dieting, those are coping mechanisms. What are you going to do if you're not if you have not dealt with the underlying issue, you have to find another way to like exercise control over your body. Speaking of control, it's time for a theory break. It seems like more things are possible, more things are permissible than ever before. We can choose any career, we can dress any number of ways, we can live anywhere and connect to the office remotely. We can do what we want with our hair, our skin, and the rest of our bodies, right? Since you're listening to this particular podcast talk about this particular topic, I'm going to guess that you realize it's not that simple. There are limits on what's acceptable, and those limits change depending on the presentation of your body. Guy Deleuze, a 20th century philosopher, argued that all those messages about freedom, pleasure, and purpose we receive on the regular are merely a facade for a society of control. Deleuze describes society as originally being organized around sovereignty. There was a ruler of one sort or another who made the rules, and then there were those who must live by those rules or risk severe physical punishment. The societies of sovereignty gave way to societies of discipline, which Michel Foucault had described as organized around institutions. Home, school, barracks, factory, hospital, prison. Each institution had a code of moral standards and expectations. If you transgressed, the institution would punish you through rehabilitation. You'd be sent to the principal's office, put on a performance improvement plan at work, or given undesirable duty assignments in your battalion. Okay, so societies of sovereignty. The king, priest, chief, earl makes the rules. If you break one, you might lose your hand. You avoid breaking the rules because you fear for your life. In societies of discipline, the institution creates a standard for conduct. If you venture outside that standard, you're kept in line by an unpleasant rehabilitation process. You avoid breaking the rules because, well, you want to avoid that unpleasantness or shame. And that's where Foucault left things. 
But Deleuze added a postscript with a third type of society. Deleuze describes societies of control. In a society of control, the boundaries between institutions break down. There's no difference between school, home, work, barracks, or church anymore. Institutional codes of conduct become meaningless because those institutions are now boundless. Instead of the institutions, we now have what's represented as the ultimate freedom. Society is tolerant, accepting, inclusive. Except, of course, that it's not. We've completely internalized the standards of conduct. We police ourselves and others. We're constantly under surveillance, whether through anxious self-monitoring, the gaze of our neighbors or coworkers, or the bits of code that follow us around wherever we take our devices. We don't need punishment. We punish ourselves. I gotta tell you, when I first encountered Deleuze's thoughts on societies of control, my mind was blown. Deleuze wrote his postscript on the societies of control in 1990, and he died in 1995. So philosophically speaking, his work was fairly recent. But it was well before internet culture lit up our society of control like a flashing neon sign. Now, I'm really interested in how the notion of surveillance and self-monitoring appear in the medium of self-help. After all, the self-help industry is exhausting. If you tried to follow even a fraction of the advice out there, there simply wouldn't be time for anything else. Now, Mickey McGee picks up on this too. She writes, quote, competent, capable, and rational adults shape their bodies and themselves. They whip themselves into shape, carefully warding off infantile incapacity and vulnerability in a vision of autonomous self-making. Mind is master, body is slave. Stephen Covey, Tony Robbins, and Helen Gurley Brown, and a host of others in best-selling diet and exercise manuals offer an image of mind over matter where the body is controlled by willpower or self-hypnosis. Now, I could pick out any number of egregious examples to demonstrate McGee's point here. But I haven't been able to get one particular example out of my mind since I first read it. And that was how best-selling author Rachel Hollis talks about the body in her book, Girl, Stop Apologizing. Her take is blatantly ableist, unscientific, misogynist, and moralistic. And yet, it's really no different than most of the cheerleading we encounter about controlling our bodies. She writes, It is an offense to your soul to continue to treat yourself so badly. Now, what she's referring to here is not negative self-talk. It's, it's not putting up with a bad relationship. What she's referring to is what she perceives as her readers out-of-control eating, out-of-control weight, out-of-control inactivity. Hollis instructs the reader to work to control their weight. She continues, quote, I had to study and go to therapy. I had to try out different workouts until I found some I love. I had to fight the urge to binge when I made slight deviations from healthy eating 
And this habit took me years to adopt. I had to teach myself new coping mechanisms for stress. I had to figure out how weight loss works and discover that it's actually the simplest thing in the world. A million diets exist based on the idea that if they can confuse you or make you think that there is an easy way out, then you'll buy whatever they're selling. The truth is, it's the same now as it has always been. If the calories you consume in a day are fewer than the calories you burn off in a day, you will lose weight. The end. Woof. Let's pause and take a deep cleansing breath after that. So that last bit, calories in, calories out, is just not true. But the fiction of such a simple piece of information means that we can blame individuals with out-of-control bodies for their lack of discipline. Calories in, calories out. What's wrong with you that you couldn't follow that simple instruction? Weight loss is not the simplest thing in the world. The science on that is pretty damn clear. Nor is weight loss the magic pill for long life and uninterrupted health that we've been led to believe it is. But calories in, calories out does give us a clear example of how self-monitoring and surveillance act on the body. When you believe that weight loss occurs when you burn more calories than you take in, the logical next step is to monitor the calories you consume and monitor the calories you burn. You meticulously track the food you eat on one app and the exercise you do on another. You start to believe that any indulgence you allow yourself has to be balanced by deprivation. Now, no one is making you do this, at least I hope they're not. We do it to ourselves. We learn that the only way to get by is to never, ever allow our attention to wane. There are few, if any, places we can let our guard down. And just as Deleuze described freedom and pleasure being conduits for this self-control, Hollis's message about the body is contained within a larger work that purports to help women live the life of their dreams. You know, if only they stopped doing all the shit they shouldn't be doing. Your best life is actually a life of relentless scrutiny. So let's not mention girls stop apologizing again, okay? I think one of the trickiest components of our society of control generally and how it acts on our bodies specifically is how enjoyable some of the work of controlling ourselves can be. And what I mean by that is that I do love exercise. I love how I feel after an eight mile run. I love lifting heavier and heavier weights. And it is just so damn easy to fixate on the control element of these activities too. It's easy for me to say to myself that I'm allowed to have another slice of pizza because tomorrow is my long run day. Now, I know better. I know better in that moment when I'm saying that thing to myself, but I find shaking that self-monitoring nearly impossible. So what do we do with this tension? Honestly, I don't know, but I did know I wanted to talk with someone else who thinks about this tension too. How did you get into bodybuilding? And for those listeners who are not familiar with the sport, can you sort of describe the discipline? 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> so actually, the story behind that's a little embarrassing. Oh, no. <laughs> that's India Jackson. She's a brand strategist and the host of Flaunt Your Fire. She also helps lead the Pause on the Play community with Erica Corday, who I referenced earlier. I was going through a phase of my life where I was phasing out television. But out of phasing out television and streaming services and really questioning, like, what am I consuming and why am I spending so much time consuming these things? Um, I allowed myself to continue to watch one show at the time, and that was The Walking Dead. Um, now, I know India is not the only person who was inspired to hit the gym after watching The Walking Dead. There's even a running app that uses zombies as motivation. I remember there was an episode where they kind of set it up in a way to have you think that one of the main characters, his name was Glenn, um, was eaten by a zombie after being on many seasons, having you fall in love with this character um, because he was not strong enough to pull himself over a fence. Now, I might be quoting that incorrectly. It's been a long time since I've seen that show, but that's kind of how I remembered it. And I was like, oh no, not me. So I was like, I need to learn how to do some push-ups and pull-ups. I've never been able to do one in my entire life. <laughs> and I started going to the gym. Uh, fast forward, you know, months later, finally hit those benchmarks of being able to do that. India began her career as a model and then took up photography. So when the bodybuilders at her gym started to seek out her services as a photographer, she got an inside look at the sport. And I was just kind of immersed into the bodybuilding world. And what that world looked like behind the scenes was very different than it looks on the stage to the general public. So it really piqued my interest. I kept finding myself backstage where people would see me with this big, you know, 10, 15 pound set of gear in my arm and my biceps are pop and they're like, oh, look at that. Are you competing today? You competing next time? I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> zero interest in that. Well, you ask someone that enough times in front of a, a coach who does nothing but prepare first timers for the stage and eventually like, okay, come on now, you're doing this. <laughs> So I decided to go ahead and give it a try. Why not get to experience firsthand what my clients were going through? All right, quick explainer. What exactly is bodybuilding? A bodybuilding competition, number one, is very different than powerlifting. They can be easily confused by people who may not know the ins and outs of the industry. Um, powerlifting, you're looking at somebody's physical strength and hitting uh, ability to lift benchmarks. Um, with bodybuilding, which is what I did, you're looking more at physique, so very specifically aesthetics. And you're being judged by aesthetic criteria. If you're thinking spray tans and itsy bitsy rhinestone bikinis, you're thinking bodybuilding. If you think unitards and grunting to lift heavy weights, you're probably thinking powerlifting. And just one more technical term because I can't help myself. If you think unitards and quickly lifting heavy weights overhead, you're probably thinking of Olympic weightlifting. I won't blame you if you have a hard time keeping that straight. And the way that you even get to that point of being on a stage to be judged includes a consistent 
and very strategic workout regimen. It's also a very specific diet as well. And these things aren't just specific, but they're also timed in stages and phases. And so you may be doing one thing four months out from competing than you would be doing the week before competing. Um, and then the week of, you're probably completely dehydrating your body after having already blown it up with a whole lot of water and salt to convince your body that it's had too much water. And now you're depleting it of water so that you can see those muscle striations um, and all the hard work that you've put in to be at the extremes of body fat percentage. For many women that competed in my category of bikini, which um, the aesthetic criteria is looking for basically having a, an X type body figure. So the tiniest waist possible while still having slightly broader shoulders and a little like muscle on those shoulders, arms and hips, but pretty much like as low of body fat as possible. And many times that is putting you into what some may consider to be the ideal visual body but might not actually be healthy in reality because you've taken specifically in the women's category people and sometimes bought them lower than 12% body fat. On one hand, bodybuilding celebrates women's capacity for strength. It creates a space in which women are not only allowed but encouraged to make their bodies bigger rather than smaller. But on the other hand, bodybuilding normalizes an ideal that is an aberration, the product of relentless hours of aesthetic labor in the gym, in the kitchen, and in front of the mirror. What's more, the sport judges performance on purely subjective aesthetic criteria. Here's how Danielle Friedman put it in her wonderful book about the history of women's exercise, Let's Get Physical. She writes... The birth of women's bodybuilding revealed just how strong women could be when given the chance to train alongside men. But because bodybuilding was, at its core, a beauty contest, a sport whose end goal was aesthetic, it provided a social x-ray like none other for how the country really felt about women's physical strength. And how it felt was extremely ambivalent. I um, was at a point where I could squat way more than my body weight. I was stronger than most men in my life. But at the same time, I am being judged on how feminine do I look on the stage. Uh, part of bikini is like very flirtatious. You're looking over your shoulder. Some people might even wink back at the judges. You know, you're in this tiny bikini that is a Brazilian style. So it's like, it's kind of leaning towards thong but not quite there you literally have to glue it to your body so that oh my god <laughs> I, I lie to you not you have to glue it to your body so that when you do certain poses on the stage to be judged by which are standard poses um nothing comes out that's it's not supposed to be showing on the stage and so it's just a really interesting process to literally be judged based on solely that day of of how you look and on the other side to have gone through the experience which many times for people is years of preparation not just those four months of preparing for a show but years of putting on muscle 
that it is all coming to a judgment on one day. So yes, it's how you look, but it's also how much work you put in to looking that way. Now, bodybuilding as a sport is inherently gender essentialist. There is the male ideal and the female ideal. There is no gray area, no accommodation for disability, no recognition of different body types. Judges do not judge the participant on criteria relative to that participant, but on absolute terms. You compete as women's physique or men's physique. So what happens if you're someone who is trans and maybe has some testosterone variation there? What happens if you're someone who identifies as non-binary? There's no formal process for that. And you don't see that changing? I really hope it changes. As far as the people politics of what happens if um, someone is doing harmful practices and making their clients sick, are they still allowed to use this brand's name? Versus uh, what happens with gender identity? Or when do we revisit the testosterone level rules? That's a lot of gray area that isn't necessarily the top of the priority, or maybe there's not as much clarity from their experience and knowledge of what to do with it. What's your practice for pursuing strength training while maintaining a healthy distance from the demand to always be optimizing? Uh, it's such a powerful <laughs> a powerful thing to contemplate. And I'll say for me, it's not the same now as it was in the past. Um, in full transparency, I took a break, an extended break from bodybuilding. My last competition was 2018. Uh, this episode's being recorded in 2022. Um, so it's been a while. And in the past, as an active athlete who's competing, that looked like optimization. That looked like tracking everything, getting on the scale every week, um, at least twice a month, taking photos in the exact same poses and the exact same bikini to visibly see what changed. Um, and I found for myself that as I eased out of like actively competing and into reevaluating for myself what's healthy and how that might not be that anymore, <laughs> I also eased out of the tracking, um, and that's probably a very controversial thing. My bodybuilding friends and, and colleagues are probably like feeling a little squeamish in their chair as they witness me saying that, but I stopped tracking quite a bit. And naturally, I started to ask myself, what is my intuition and what is my body telling me? because the optimization, the second job of working out, which for me literally was a second job, it was about 20 hours a week spent on nutrition, meal prep, and exercise, sometimes two to three hours a day of exercise, and two sessions, depending on what part of prep I was in. And I found myself wanting to get back to what is sustainable, what is healthy? What is a normal thing for me? I started listening to what my body was telling me. Sometimes it was telling me that I needed more dietary fat, so I had an avocado. <laughs> my period has been gone for a month. That's not normal, right? So let me see what I need to do to adjust my hormones. 
Um, sometimes it was telling me that while I absolutely love throwing some weights around and it's a great stress relief for me, that I wanted to begin to incorporate some community and some fun back into my workouts. And so that might have been um, going roller skating. That's still cardio. Why do I have to make it be this like headphones on and pounding it out on the treadmill thing? <laughs> You know, so it allows me to do that, too, while also having fun and not always associating exercise and health with something that has to be on a to do list. If you're not careful, the constantly questioning what can I improve actually then creates more space to constantly be observing what's wrong, air quotes wrong with you. Um, and so then we begin to put that anti-fatness, uh, that ableism, that classism, that racism, whatever it is, on ourselves. So even in the process of wanting to improve on our lives and to be happier and to be more comfortable in our own skin, you know, can have a downside if we're constantly asking that question and seeking outside answers for that. I think it's a constant practice of changing the question from what can I improve to what am I happy with and how can I do more of that? Now, I really like the way India reframes constant critique into an opportunity to witness the positive. And I think it still leaves the door open to compulsive, controlling thoughts and behaviors. Focusing on the positive can reinforce the belief that there are negatives to be tolerated. Shawnee Orgad and Rosalind Gill write about this in their book, Confidence Culture. Quote, expressions of pain and insecurity are key features of commercial body confidence messages to be glimpsed only briefly before a defiant reposte is blazant. My beauty, my say, says Dove. From self-doubt to self-worth, says L'Oreal. My can't stop me now hair, Pantene. Now these advertising slogans remind us that someone else has a say in whether we're beautiful, that self-doubt is a default emotion, and that there are some sorts of hairstyles that can make it easy to stop you. I don't know what that means. Now when you stop to think about it, this is a weird way to construct a message that's meant to be affirming and empowering. It's a backhanded compliment. And as Orgad and Gail point out, these slogans put the burden on individual choice and consumer products rather than fixing the systemic issues that made these problems in the first place. Breaking down those systems is critical if you're working on your body image and understanding where those beliefs come from is critical if you are working on your body image. Because like the more you understand where it's coming from and what it really is about, the easier it is for you to break them down and to kind of separate that in your mind. Tiffany Ema again. It's almost like a paradox. Like we, we find ourselves just like kind of wrapped up in all of these different things and you know, no matter how much someone can say, like, you know, I'm I'm completely free of all of these systems and I've, I've dismantled it all in my mind and I no longer, you do, though. Like, we, most of us do, especially if you're an influencer in the space, you still have, there's still a level of it um, that you're contending with every single day. We are actively trying to break the systems down while, 
like you said, while existing in them, which is incredibly difficult. Like I still show, and I feel like every person who has gained influence, they have some level of privilege, you know? You know, even though I'm a dark-skinned Black woman, I'm still in a relatively smaller body, and I'm pretty. And so it's just, like, being able to acknowledge your privilege and being able to say, like, hey, like, I, I see that I'm still a part of this system um, is important. It's really important. You're going to keep facing these obstacles. You're going to keep getting hit with these same beliefs. And it can be hard to live in a world where you are met with all of these intersections of marginalization and then you you're trying to disband those beliefs for yourself. So for someone who is a fat black person might have a harder time getting a job and, you know, actually like living the qual our, the quality of life is actually diminished because of how you show up in this world. So it, there's all these layers to it. Now, as I said at the beginning, there is so much to be said on the topic of good bodies and how the medium of self-help interacts with the body. I want to start wrapping things up for today, though, with something Jessica Defino told me that offers a different perspective on beauty and the messages we receive about what is beautiful. I see beauty as a as like an inherently human craving, like a, a human right. Like I see it up there with, you know, beauty, freedom, truth, love. Like these are things that we as humans crave and we're constantly like drawn to and we're constantly working towards. And so what we're sold when it's industrialized is it's not beauty. We're sold this idea of beauty as this one dimensional, purely physical thing that you can purchase and consume your way into. In reality, this like pie in the sky beauty that we really crave is not one dimensional, it's multi-dimensional. It is not about just physical, it is about feeling. Um, I compare it to art sometimes. So when you look at a piece of art and you think like, oh, that's beautiful. You're not just admiring like the $29.99 canvas that it's <laughs> painted on like the canvas isn't really part of it you're not just admiring like the color globs that's not part of it it's about the entire experience of the thing it's about the feeling that it evokes in you it's about your connection to it um your connection to the artist who created it like there's so there's so much in that kind of beauty that is the kind of beauty that we crave right and so we're sold this idea that Beauty is actually like this physical thing that has to do with how many wrinkles you have and how big your lips are and, you know, how smooth your hair is. <laughs> and so we chase that because we crave beauty. And it's never fulfilling because it's not the kind of beauty we actually crave as humans. And you sort of like retrain yourself to be attracted to the current beauty ideal because that represents power that represents participation in all of these systems, that represents the social norms of the day. And what we're doing when we're gravitating towards this physical beauty is just inherently unfulfilling on so many levels of our, of our basic humanity. We are so ready to self-monitor and control ourselves precisely because the system is set up to leave us unsatisfied and unfulfilled. Constant surveillance and optimization promise to bring us closer to a sense of well-being. But instead, it only makes us more aware of our failings. Failings we spend time, money, and energy to mitigate. 
the body is a site where this control is especially potent. But it's also true of our expectations for work and productivity. It's true of how we think about money and our personal finances. It pops up in our relationships with our partners and children. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot to be excited about when it comes to thinking differently about our bodies and every other area of our lives. We're in an era of unparalleled representation in media. Social media is a space in which people, especially young people, ask big questions about what previous generations have taken for granted. And the society of control is excellent at using all of that as a tool. After all, the growth of the skincare industry, the widespread no makeup makeup trend, the proliferation of vomit-inducing workouts, the rise of athleisure clothing, the marketing campaigns that preach body positivity while excluding disabled bodies, these are all the same old, same old, repackaged for a new cultural vibe. Get more of Jessica DeFino's analysis of the beauty industry at jessicadefino.substack.com. That's jessicadefino.substack.com. Find Tiffany Ema talking about true body confidence on Instagram. She's at Tiffany Ema. That's Tiffany I-M-A. And listen to India Jackson on the Flaunt Your Fire podcast and find out more about her brand visibility agency at flauntyourfire.com. That's flauntyourfire.com. Want to hear more from Jessica, Tiffany, and India? I'm releasing lightly edited versions of these conversations in a new private podcast feed called Context Curious for premium subscribers of What Works. You'll hear my cleaned up but full conversations with the thinkers, practitioners, owner workers, and authors I've featured over the last few years. Because for as much good stuff as I can fit into an episode of What Works, there is always so much more on the cutting room floor. Jessica's conversation goes out tomorrow, and it's a good one. To become a premium subscriber of What Works for just $7 per month, go to whatworks.fyi. That's whatworks.fyi. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. This episode was written by me, Tara McMullen, and edited by Marty Seafelt and me. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. All of the music in today's episode is from Track Club by Marmoset, a certified B Corp. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples in what is now called Central Pennsylvania. The Yellow House sits on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.